If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about community. We're talking about your audience. How do you build up an audience, a community, a group of customers that know you, they know your company, they know what you're about, you know them, you know who they are, what they expect. How do you do that effectively, especially in a time where there are so many games coming out, so many games on the market, so much noise to try to push through? How do you do that? And we're talking to Elon Lee and Carol Mertz from Exploding Kittens. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So glad that you're here. You're, yours is a company that is just an incredible case study of overnight success, quote unquote, and we'll get into what that really means here in a minute, of a company that showed up on Kickstarter, had the most popular Kickstarter of all time, uh, 200 plus thousand backers, and then that launched a company. And now you have just so many games on the market, so many really fun games, games that my kids and I really enjoy. And you've just built up this amazing community, this amazing audience that they know what to expect when they see one of your games, they have expectations and, and you are working to deliver on what kind of games that you provide. And uh, yeah, I think y- y'all have done just an incredible job building an audience, building a community. And then now you're doing some crazier things, you know, things I've never seen before. And we'll get into your Kickstarter <laughs> rewards here in just a little bit, some just absolutely bananas things. Uh, but anyway, before we get into that, who are y'all? How did you get into game design? We'll talk about the origin of, of the company here in just a minute. But from just a personal standpoint, Carol, let's start off with you. How did you get into game design and kind of get uh, involved with uh, Exploding Kittens? Oh, sure. Um, well, I got into game design like 15 years ago <laughs> or something along those lines. Um, I, I was orbiting games and found them really interesting as I was in undergrad and um, went from kind of animation and web and transitioned slowly over the years into game design because I just found it so much more interesting than just tech and web. The idea of like really connecting with players and building an experience it seemed like a really exciting way to take those skills that I built while doing web design and web development and apply them along with the art that I really loved. So, um, yeah, I started making games, you know, when I was in my young twenties and then now am, uh, have graduated with an MFA in game design (laughs) and have produced some several dozens of games and, um, started working with Exploding Kittens a couple of years ago after freelancing for nearly a year with them and have loved it ever since. That's awesome. And now you're the senior game designer at Exploding Kittens. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. 
Yeah, very cool. And I want to chat a little bit more about y'all's job titles and kind of the way your your jobs work at the company, because I know it's a little bit different than a lot of other companies. But before we get to that, Elon, tell me about you. I know you started off, I think, in video games. And so tell me kind of your personal game design journey leading up to Exploding Kittens as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started out in video games. I, I actually started out having no idea what the hell I wanted to do. And in college, um, I applied for a job at Microsoft. And, um, you know, I heard that they, they had a small games group there. I didn't really know very much about the video game world, but thought, oh, that looks fun. They're going to pay me to play video games. I'm in. And um, within the first year that I was there, they grabbed me and five other people who were working there and said, we have this new idea. It's called the Xbox. Here's $200 million. Please don't screw it up. And <laughs> that was my first, you know, no, first year uh, at Microsoft. Yeah. No pressure there, right? Yeah. Just, uh... So um, it was great. I, I mean, that is absolutely hyperbole. We, we worked with some very, very smart people who dealt with that money very responsibly. But, you know, for a, for a guy fresh out of college, this was an enormous amount of responsibility and uh, truly trial by fire. I mean, I, I, I jumped in and I designed a bunch of games and I worked with really smart people to design other games. And um, after a little bit, we pushed out the first Xbox and the launch portfolio, the first six games on that platform. And that kind of started my career. And um, after that, I, I did a series of startups all in the entertainment space. I've, I've done uh, movie studios, I've done advertising agencies, I've done video game companies, I've done alternate reality game companies. Like, I'm, I'm always enamored by this concept of what, what are the tools that we need to entertain each other? And um, that eventually led me to um, a crazy weekend project with a friend of mine, uh, Matt Inman. Uh, we decided to try a card game along those same lines like what what if we made a card game whose sole purpose was let's give people a tool set to entertain each other and that's how exploding kittens was born yeah that's amazing we'll get into the origins of the company in a second but first i want to say i don't know who was on your team that decided that halo should be one of the first games on the xbox <laughs> but i hope they got a bonus because that was a, that was a good call that, that was, was a good, good one call. yeah absolutely um okay so let's get into the origins of Exploding Kittens. And we were chatting before I hit record about, I can always tell the companies that weren't uh, sure or didn't know they were going to have such good success because they have a tendency to name the company after the game that they're working on. And so as soon as I was like, oh, Exploding Kittens is the company and the game, I was like, okay, they had no idea. They were about to make a bazillion dollars on Kickstarter <laughs> and have 200,000 backers. They had no clue. And a so to hear you say- last lack of foresight there. Yeah. Oh, man. And to hear you say, oh, it was a little weekend project. Yeah, we just uh, you know spitballing, throwing around ideas, and it turned into the most popular Kickstarter in, uh, in history. And so let's talk about that, because there are a lot of people that weren't familiar with the oatmeal, didn't know you, didn't know anything about Matt, didn't know any of the, the backstory. And they came to Kickstarter one day and they said, who is this company? What is this game? How in the world have they raised millions and millions of dollars, 200,000 backers? What an incredible overnight success. And we all know it takes 10, 20, 50 years to be an overnight success. And so I want to hear a little bit of like how you guys were a quote unquote overnight success. Tell me, you know, kind of a little more about the oatmeal and that audience that was built up and how you kind of came to, to get involved. And then we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I had, um, I actually went after a series of startups, um, I actually went back to Microsoft and was over there working on the Xbox one. And after that platform launched, I thought, all right, I need a break enough of this video game thing. I am exhausted. And so my plan was I'm going to take a year off and do nothing at all. 
And doing nothing at all, um, I ended up uh, taking a little vacation uh, with a group of friends. And one of the friends there was uh, Matthew Inman, who created and writes the oatmeal. And um, he asked me, he's like, what are you, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I got this silly idea for a card game. Uh, I don't know. Someday I might put it up on Kickstarter. And he said, well, let's, let's play that game. Let's play it. And I said, well, you know, we're in Hawaii. Like, let's go surf. Let's go play. Let's go do, do all the things that you're supposed to do that are not sit around a table and play cards. And he said, come on, just let's play for five minutes. And I was like, all right, five minutes, we'll play the game. And I took out the cards. At the time, the game was called Bomb Squad because it was all about trying to avoid this bomb hidden in the deck of cards. And uh, we played for five minutes and he said, let's go again. So we played again and again. Five minutes turned into 10 minutes and 20 minutes. And four hours later, we're still playing this game. And he eventually looks up and he said, listen, I have been searching for a game to wrap my comics around for a long time. I really, really want to partner with you on this. I'd love for this to be an oatmeal card game. Uh, what do you think? And, you know, here's a spoiler. If, if the oatmeal ever asks you if he can partner with you to do a card game, the answer is yes. Hell yes. Uh, and so I said, sure, let's do it. And he said, okay, I only have one requirement and that's we can't use the name Bomb Squad because that's just so boring. It's so obvious that you're scared of bombs. Of course you're scared of bombs. Well, who, if you tell someone that bombs are scary and they should be scared of bombs, they're just going to shrug and say, well, yeah, of course. He said, instead, let's make it something unexpected. What if we called the game Exploding Kittens instead? And uh, that was that was the moment. Like the, the game was named that quickly, and uh, we then decided uh, to put it up on Kickstarter. Uh, we put the entire campaign together in about two weeks, put it up on Kickstarter, truly expecting to raise about ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars was the amount of money we needed to satisfy our minimum production requirements. Like that's how much the printer needed just to like take on the project. And so we're like, cool. Let's aim for ten thousand um, dollars. Hopefully, we'll we'll, we'll pass that. Um, we hit that in about seven minutes. Uh, by the first twenty-four hours, we hit a million dollars. Next day, another million. By the end of the campaign, thirty days later, we had raised almost nine million dollars off this silly little cat game. That's absolutely crazy. And so, just give me like a behind-the-scenes look at you, your emotions, the thoughts going through your head. You and Matt, I'm sure you're having conversations of like, what is going on right now? As you hit fifty thousand backers, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand backers, tell me just like what's going through your brain. Yeah, so it's it's two hundred thousand backers, but most of them are ordering multiple sets. So by the end of it, we had to print more than seven hundred thousand copies of the game. Our wow. first print run ever was more than seven hundred thousand copies, and so I had I had um, I have um, some friends who were in the card business and I, I called them up and I was like, hey, uh, I'm about to launch this Kickstarter. I need some help. Can you introduce me to some manufacturers? And they're like, sure, no problem. So I talked to this one manufacturer um, and she was like, yeah, I'll do this for you. Ten thousand uh, ten thousand dollars. That's about what we need. And <laughs> after two weeks when it was clear that we were going to just break every record the Kickstarter had. Uh, she called me up, didn't even say hello. I picked up the phone and all I hear on the other end is just screaming for like 15 seconds, just screaming. And when she finally calms down, she's like, I have no idea how we're going to do this. I have no idea where we can print this. I have no idea how to handle this scale. And uh, we both kind of took some deep breaths and calmed down and uh, got to work on solving that problem. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And I've talked to so many people that have actually run into a similar scenario where success was actually worse than failure because yeah. of the scale and because of the problems. And all of a sudden, you know, if you make a dollar mistake and you only have 2,000 backers, what's well, a $2,000 mistake? You know, you can recover from that. If you make a dollar mistake on a print run of 700,000 copies, yeah. that's a bit more of an issue. It's and really so, terrifying. Yeah, if you look oh, at man. if you look at the top Kickstarter campaigns of all time, like if you look at the top 10, um, I believe that there are two, us and I think one other company that are still in business. Because the reality is, Kickstarter is, you, you don't go there expecting scale like that. And when you hit that level, it's overwhelming. It's so easy. It's, it's just a house of cards. It's so easy to mess it up. It's so easy to mismanage those funds. It's so easy to make an irreversible mistake. We got very lucky on a lot of different levels and very fortunately uh, still in business and growing today. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. I want to come back to that in just a minute. I want to talk about maybe some of the things you've run into before we get in, because I feel like all of this leads into community and understanding your audience and being able to stay in business for a long time. It means you understand who you're selling to and you don't make a lot of mistakes in that. But I want to go back to Carol. So at what point, remind me, how many years have you been working for the company? Um, I've been working for the company, including freelancing, almost two and a half at this point, or a little over two years. Um, so I started uh, in the fall of 2019. Okay, cool. So by that point, the company was rolling pretty well, it had very well established uh, line of games and different things coming out. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was after Throw Throw Burrito had already been released um, right as uh, Poetry for Neanderthals was, or right before Poetry for Neanderthals was coming out, actually. A lot. I remember having a conversation with you when I was interviewing with the company still, and you were like, get this what if i give you a word and you have to describe it to me in single syllables and i was like this is ridiculous and hilarious and then you know lo and behold less than a year later it's on shelves and it's it's wild to to you know have been able to see that process but yeah um, yeah very well established <laughs> yeah that's so cool speaking of throw throw burrito that's one of my kids favorite games every time we have a game night and they get to choose that's it's almost uh, unanimous of the one that they get to choose. I'm fine with that. I'm undefeated currently. I- I'm on a pretty good winning streak. And uh, any game that I can hit my kids with stuff uh, is is a pretty good game. That's, that's a win for everybody. We, um, we, what's hilarious <laughs> about that game? I think I think it has a distinction, um, unlike any other game, because the game actually involves throwing foam characters as part of the game. Uh, every once in a while, maybe like once every two months, we will get a picture of one of our players in the hospital as a result of playing that game. <laughs> and I want to say we are unique in the world in getting that particular kind of fan mail. Yeah, that's true. Although if people started playing my games like they play yours, they'd be hitting each other with dice and boards and they would probably end up with more hospitalizations. And so I guess it's all about how you <laughs> word the rule book. <laughs> but anyway, Carol, where I was going with this is, so one thing I found in my community, now that I've been doing this board game design lab community podcasting for a while, is I have found so many amazing people from the community who reach out to me and say, hey, I'm working on this. I got this project. Hey, I see you got this upcoming thing. Can I help you with your rule book? Can I help with graphic design? Like I have so many people coming out of the community that then want to work with me. And it's just an incredible uh, benefit to, to everybody. Was it similar with you? Did you see some Exploding Kitten, kitten Games? Did you see the, you know, the presence they had online? And you're like, oh, I want to be a part of that. Is that kind of, were you one of the people in the community that then is now working for the company? I, um, well, so I had played Exploding Kittens before and I, you know, I really, I followed the Kickstarter and I was really excited about it, but actually I was introduced to the company through a friend. I was just, um, graduating with my MFA in 
game design, like I mentioned earlier, and had reached out to my network and said, hey, I'm you know graduating soon. I'm talented. I've got all these games under my belt. I'm looking for a job. And a friend of mine who helps to run Indicate actually was like, I've got a, <laughs> I have a friend who might happen to be looking for a game designer right now. And they introduced me to the team at EK. And I was like, heck yeah, I like cats and parties and making fun. So let's, let's team up. And we did. Uh, it was really great. <laughs> I, just to add to that, I, I got to say the the recruiting process there was the opposite of how you'd think it would go. Like signing signing Carol up for a, a contract basis is easy; anybody can do that. But after that, it was us wooing her. Like once we realized how smart and talented Carol was, it was it was basically begging her to come on full time because that's it, it's it's very hard to find uh, a good additions to your team that meld so wonderfully and so. Uh, the the auditioning process was very much backwards to what you're probably thinking. Gotcha. All right, but along those same lines, though, at this point, I know y'all work with a lot of freelancers. You have a lot of people on staff. You have a really cool environment for game design. Carol, you were on the show a while back, and we got to chat about the environment, the atmosphere that y'all have created there. What would be your advice to companies that want to do something similar, that want to create this atmosphere that breeds creativity, that breeds having wonderful people that want to be part of the company and being able, like you're saying, to, to woo people on, right? You have to be able to sell something. You have to have something that people want to be a part of to be able to do that. So what would be your advice to people? Elon, let's, let's go you first from kind of the higher level. And then, Carol, I want to hear from you on like kind of the ground level as well. Um, for me, look, I don't, I don't have a, a golden formula here. Like there's, there's, there's no rule I can tell you that's going to solve the, how do you build a good team? Um, what I will say, the thing that I've found most valuable, um, in, in running this team and we're, you know, we're now over 80 people and another 20 contractors on top of that. And the, the thing that has helped the most is I, I think it's really important to be very, very attentive to what people are saying and how they're feeling. Um, I have interviews with literally every person at the company uh, when they've been there for six weeks, when they've been there for six months. Every every Friday, uh, I just sit in a chat room open. Anybody who wants to stop by, uh, I, I hope they do, and, and we talk about all kinds of things. It's not to say any of that stuff is particularly smart or interesting. It's just trying very, very hard to say, I, I, I realize that I don't know more about this than anybody else. And it's only uh, by working as a team that we can make this place the best place for that team. Gotcha. And then Carol, from kind of the, the ground level, what are you seeing? What are some of the things that y'all are doing as designers, as people on the kind of ground floor of the company to create this atmosphere and create something that people in the community would want to be a part of? Well, so as designers, we're just constantly thinking about, you know, what are the products that we can be making that get, get that get our fans excited, that get our fans engaged, that maintain this, you know, this atmosphere that we're kind of targeting with every single game that we release of joy and laughter and conversation and entertainment. Like that's that's kind of the the cornerstone of everything that we do. Alan likes to say, we don't make uh, games that are interesting. We make games that make the people that you're playing with interesting. And so I think, you know, that's a huge credit to Alan for constantly repeating that mantra for us so that that's 
a reminder to us designers that that's our goal. That's what we're constantly striving for in our designs. And I think that that's made such a huge impact on our community because now our players come to us knowing that, okay, I'm getting together with people that I care about. I want to laugh. I want to have a good time. I want to get excited. I'm going to pick up an Exploding Kittens game. Yeah, I love that. And I love that it gives you a decision filter for pretty much every option, every choice, every decision that comes along. You think through, okay, how is this going to fit our core values? How is this going to fit our audience, our customers? How is it going to make the people at the table become interesting? And if it's not, then there's our answer. We don't have to worry about that. Let's go a different direction. Let's put that on the shelf. Let's try something else. I love that it gives you that kind of very obvious filter for everything that you're you're thinking through. And so let's talk about that just a little bit more because one thing, we, I think we were talking about this before I hit record, is I can walk through Walmart, I can walk through Target, I can go in the game uh, aisle and I can see your games on the shelf and point them out and know which ones are yours without seeing the logo. I see the fonts, I see the colors, I see the idea of the game, maybe the theme, and I go, that's a game by Exploding Kittens. And nine times out of 10, I'm going to be correct. And so y'all have done an incredible job of branding, of creating products that fit in your lineup and, and really serving your customers, your community, really, really well, I believe. And so tell me about that. Is that something that you're constantly you know, having meetings and talking through and, and figuring that out? Or is it something that you kind of maybe just fell into or, or just from a, a bigger picture level? Elon, what, what are your thoughts on that as far as like, games in the line yeah um i think it's important to say that the question you're asking is actually two different questions um there are i believe that there are two parts to any successful game i'll talk about what those two parts are in a second but just to contextualize this you say you walk through a store you can instantly pick out the exploding kittens games the only reason you can instantly pick them out is because in the past you have played an exploding kittens game and it delivered on that the moment we stop giving a good game experience stop delivering on the promise that that packaging holds that's the moment you're going to stop looking for them and stop even having that expectation and so at that point what's the point so when I say there's two elements to a game, it, that experience you just had is actually capitalizing on both of those. And it's proving to me, I love to hear stories like that because that's saying, okay, you're doing both of the things right. Here's what both of those things are. Number one is really, really good gameplay that celebrates the players. As Carol said, we don't just make, we do not make games that are interesting. We do not make games that are entertaining. We only make games that make the players interesting and entertaining. That's it. Um, and we believe that if we're, very, very focused on that, that, we will always deliver on that notion of, okay, this lived up to the hype. This lived up to my expectations of what an exploding experience should be like, exploding kittens experience. Now, the second part is the ability to sell that game. If we have the best game in the world and we have no idea how to sell it, no idea what to call it, no idea how to brand it, no idea what colors to put on the box, it doesn't matter that it's the best game in the world. And vice versa. If we have the best packaging and marketing in the world and it's not a good game, doesn't matter. Not worth putting out there. And so our company is really focused on those two disciplines, each almost unrelated to the other. Um, I know now with working with a lot of designers that a lot of people develop their themes and names in lockstep with the game development. You know, uh, the the theme, it, we're doing a shark-based game. Therefore, okay, we need we need to figure out what does it mean to swim? What does it mean to bite? What does it mean to attack? You know, that like those two things get developed at the same time. For us, it's almost entirely divorced. 
we create games that are generic, uh, that capitalize on a bit of gameplay that we're really excited about, that makes everybody smile and everybody have a good time. And then separately, we come up with, all right, what is a concept that we can wrap around this that we think is going to sell? What imagery do we have to put on the box in order to make someone walk down an aisle at the retail store, stop dead in their tracks because they saw that thing, pick it up, flip that box over to the back, and now hopefully we can describe the game and get them to buy it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And this is something, especially for smaller publishers, smaller companies, to really be aware of, to really think about who is your audience? What is the community that you've built up? What do they expect? And then how do you keep on delivering that to them? Because if you stray away from that, if you get that shiny object syndrome, you're like, ooh, I've got this really cool idea. And it's like, yeah, but that's not exactly the games you've ever made before. Like, it's going to be a struggle because that your audience that you built up doesn't expect that. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine runs a company and all he had ever made were dexterity games. He had done like seven or eight dexterity-based games. And they were amazing games. He'd done really well on Kickstarter, had built up an incredible community, incredible audience that loved his dexterity games. And then he came out with a game that had nothing to do with dexterity. It was like a, a <laughs> tile placement game that was, you know, all these different combos and whatever. And nobody understood it because they're like, wait, where's the dexterity part? Um, is this, the, is this a dexterity? Like you make dexterity games. And even, and then he made another mistake. He had very similar art as his other games. He hired, I think he hired a similar art, artist or the same artist um, to do that game as well. And he's like, okay, this is just too confusing. And the game struggled. I think it failed the first time you ran a campaign on Kickstarter. I think the second time it barely funded, like it didn't do super well because his audience, his community, one, that wasn't what they expected. Two, he didn't communicate well that, hey, this is a totally different thing. And so he just ran into uh, some issues there. Have y'all run into anything similar? Um, Elon, we'll talk about from the bigger picture and then I'm going to get back to you, Carol, as far as like the, the game design and development. Um, well, to summarize what you said, because I think it's so important, is if you design a really good game and you don't design the method by which you can sell that game, you have now wasted a really good game. It's really that simple. And unless, unless you are aware of that, unless you're thinking about those two things that must be designed together, uh, you, you've got no chance. And like your friend's example is really interesting to me because his inability to sell that game must then be coupled with to his audience, right? And it's not just sell a game, it's to the audience that you have access to. In our case, um, our audience is to a very large extent uh, the oatmeal audience, and they like that sense of humor. They like that, uh, you know, that that irreverence. They like slightly biting wit, and we know how to deliver on that. So, it's it is our burden then to make sure that every game is possible to sell to that audience, and then hopefully, uh, in the case of most of our games, they will then go tell all their friends about it uh, because they had this great experience. We've luckily, fortunately, done that more than 18 million times, which is amazing for us. But I'll give you, I'll give you, um, here's an example. Um, we put out a game a few years back called You've Got Crabs. And we, it's, it's a, it's a great game. I absolutely adore this game. It's so fun. It does all the things it's supposed to do, right? It's, it's, it makes everybody you're playing with massively entertaining. Everybody laughs and smiles and has a great time. The problem is, we picked an audience. The, the, the audience that that name appeals to uh, is much smaller than we anticipated. I actually sat in Target and watched the toy shelf, the game shelf, excuse me, as people would go up 
pick up that game and put it back down. And I'd run up to them. I'd be, why, why can you just talk me through, like, why'd you put that game back down? I'm not interested in a game about venereal disease or it's not appropriate for my kids. <laughs> right. And I, and I remember thinking like, Oh, we completely missed the mark here. Like this, we, we have taken our big audience and created a game that is only appropriate for a tiny, tiny subset of that audience. So here we have a great game. We've completely botched up the ability to sell that game to the audience we have access to what we got to go back and rethink this. Yeah. That sounds like a game by cards against humanity. Yep. In, in one of those companies, right? Yep. If, if all I knew was the title, then that's exactly what I would assume. I would assume it's a party game. It's, it's kind of a tongue in cheek. It's maybe got some innuendo, you know, sexual references and things like that. Not for me, not for my kids. And exactly. I'm not even going to, I'm just going to keep walking right by it. And so, yeah, you bring up, that's, that's, that's it. That's what we were broadcasting. And it was really a misstep. Um, we're actually pulling that game back, rebranding it uh, and re-releasing it because we, like I said, we're just in love with this game. And so we want to see if we can give it a second chance with a better name. Yeah. And I think that's hundred percent the right option. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn and you go back and you redo it and you, you try to, hopefully you have enough capital to, uh, to relaunch it, to retheme it. You know, sometimes it messes you up your entire company. So it's definitely something to just be aware of. And I'm glad that you guys can, uh, can do that. All right, Carol, back, back to you. Let's talk about from the design, from the development standpoint, when you're working on a game or when you, you've got a game that's maybe come in through a pitch or something like that, tell me the conversations that you're having just personally, you know, in your own head, but also the conversations with the team as far as like, okay, how do we make sure that we deliver to our audience? How do we make sure that the game delivers on all levels of what's expected from the people that we have uh, as customers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the the exciting thing for the development team at Exploding Kittens is that we have these years of stories <laughs> from, you know, from you've got crabs to, you know, bears versus babies to, to all of these games that have, um, you know, basically either done the thing that we want them to do or not done the thing that we wanted them to do and why. And so we all as, you know, collectively as a team have learned that basically the simpler, the better, and the more mass appeal, the better. So we're constantly trying to come up with ideas that are going to be five minutes to learn, really easy to onboard, the simplest instructions possible, and then about 15 minutes to play. So you can fill it in where you want to, or you can keep playing and playing for four hours the way that Alan and Matt played Exploding Kittens the first time. Um, and so so that's kind of always our, our goalpost, our barometer as a design team, because we know that our audience has about that amount of patience for learning and for playing. And that level of excitement that I was talking about earlier, where we're, we're angling for that dynamic, the, the exciting party dynamic of getting everybody in the room excited and and energized and motivated that's an added part of that so we're we're constantly balancing all of these things where we know we're not making hobby games we know we're not making these super complex games where we could you know encourage these really exciting dynamics if we wanted to pile mechanics on top of mechanics on top of mechanics but then that takes away from the audience that we're targeting because we're literally targeting the audience at Target. <laughs> um, <laughs> those, those are the people that are going to be wanting these, the, you know, these smaller experiences that they can just grab, play with their family, and then have dinner. You know, it's not, it's not going to be something that's going to take all night. It's something that they're, um, it's, it's a part of their night. It's not the entire night, right? So just to add to that a sec. So Gabe, I, I, I've been listening a lot to your podcast, and um, you had someone on um, last year, um, blanking on his name, a guy from uh, Nick Metzler, Nick Metzler, uh, who mm -hmm. 
you were talking to him about what things he looks uh, looks for in good game, good games. And and his response um, was great. It was so good I had to write it down. It's sitting here on my whiteboard. I apologize. I didn't write his name down, so I hope I didn't just butcher it. But he said it's got to have um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I I have never heard it phrased that perfectly before is, you know, as we're looking at those, at those games that, okay, are you going to understand them in five minutes? Are you going to spread them around to your friends? Are you going to smile immediately? Can you, can you figure out exactly how to play? It really does boil down to that. Like, do you, are you able to play this game? Can you actually do the things you're supposed to do? Can you get better at it over time? And do you understand why you're playing? And I kind of feel like all of our biggest hits check those three boxes in a really spectacular way. And uh, yeah, I think it's just a really nice guiding principle for how to build quality games and quality game design. Yeah, 100%. And even, I mean, we're talking about games with, with your line that aren't complex, that are basically on a pamphlet as far as a rule book is concerned, but yet still you're able to check all of those boxes and players are able to figure out better ways to play, little sneaky strategies. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded again of Throw Throw Burrito with my kids. They haven't beaten me yet. But they've gotten closer and closer every time we play because they get better and better at throwing that daggum burrito, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I love that that's kind of the process that you're thinking through. Now, Carol, back to what uh, you were saying as far as like having the constraints. And one thing I, I've talked to so many designers and publishers on this show over the years is how it gets a little bit easier, honestly, when you do have a box to put yourself in, to put your company in, because you don't have to worry about the million ideas, million opportunities. You only have to worry about that box that you've created for you and, and your lineup and things like that. Have you found that to be the case? Is it a little bit easier to design these games because you do have those constraints that do limit you where you're not, you know, working with infinite possibilities? I mean, it's always easier to, de to design with constraints, right? I will say that I, it's, it is actually probably more difficult to design simplicity <laughs> than people like to give it credit for. I mean, so it's easy to, patch problems in a game, like to add autonomy with an extra mechanic, or it's easy to say, oh, there's a really weird loophole here where people are, you know, they're using this strategy that we don't want them to use. Let's add in an extra rule to try to, you know, make sure that they're not doing that. But the more of those little band-aid rules that you add on, suddenly the less approachable the game becomes. And so that's something that we're constantly running up against as we're trying to make sure that our rules are staying on these tiny pamphlets, which thank you for noticing. That's a lot of work uh, to make sure that we can actually do that. Um, we have to be constantly thinking about, well, how do we design the game in such a way that those things don't happen in the first place? Not so that we can band-aid them or so that we can you know, try to avoid them um, you know, like after we've already designed the game, but how do we approach the project? How do we approach this um, gameplay design in such a way that it's it's already built in? I gotta, I, I have to add something here because Carol's Carol's yeah, being sure. modest. Um, she <laughs> Carol Carol has um this this superpower that she doesn't really talk much about. But I'm I'm Carol. I, I apologize if you're turning red now, but um, the world needs to know. So. Um, <laughs> You, you, um, what Carol's especially good at speaking to you if you're not here, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, a while ago, we're working on a top secret project that I can't really talk too much about, but she presented this, this design based on some enormous constraints and she came up with a very clever solution, but that solution 
involved a huge amount of audience memory. Like as the players were playing, they had to they had to keep track of a bunch of stuff in their head. And that was actually one of the core principles of the game and why it was fun. And she showed it to me and I was like, look, you've, you've checked off all the boxes. This is, this is really fun. But I would argue that memory is a non-starter. Like so many people, myself included, have terrible memories. And if you are requiring people to have a really good memory in order to achieve mastery of this game, you're going to eliminate a whole bunch of people. And the problem with feedback like that is memory was like the core facet of the game. It was what the entire thing was hinged on. And so what I was basically saying back to her completely unfairly was, can you please go make something this fun, except start over and don't keep any of this. (laughs) And um, without missing a beat, like I think it was within like a week, maybe two weeks, she came back with exactly that. Like exactly that uh, against all the odds. Um, and, and so when Carol talks about that, those constraints and the ability uh, to, to keep in mind what the players need to experience, um, it's also important to note that um, that is also going through a testing process, sometimes just with one person, sometimes with a lot of people, um, and fundamentally altering your game. Uh, in order to reach a larger audience, in order to be more fun, and to not lose heart and focus uh, as you go through that incredibly difficult process. Yeah, and I will I will just say that, I mean, the fact that Alon knows our audience so well is a huge benefit to us because we can have these kinds of play tests and suddenly, you know, we're getting this perfect feedback that says, hey, our audience is not going to be able to you know, approach this game the way that it's currently standing. So we need to rethink this. And I, you know, I wouldn't have thought about it that way. And the fact that we were able to just kind of get that out of the way early on in the process without even having to take it to play tests with our audience is such a huge benefit to us. Like so many designers can't think from the standpoint of just one of your regular players. Like so many designers are stuck in game design brain, stuck in advanced gameplay, stuck in the idea that we've got, you know, all of this um, game design literacy that pre-exists. And I, I honestly, you know, speaking of uh, speaking of community and speaking of why Exploding Kittens is successful, I think that a big part of that is because Alon so closely understands what it is our audience is looking for. So back at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe that one of the most important skills a designer can have is empathy. Being able to put yourself in the shoes of your customer, in the shoes of your players, and really understand what they're feeling, what they're going through, how much uh, cognitive load you're putting on them, whatever it is. Just that empathy of understanding how your game is going to impact them and their experience. And then kind of right off of what you were just saying a minute ago, as far as like simplicity one thing I've learned is that anybody can make an idea more complicated. That is not hard. It is not hard to add more rules. But goodness gracious, is it difficult to make it more simple? Take away rules, make it a pamphlet for your rule book. That is a very, very challenging thing, no matter how simple your game is. Even like I've seen simple games with 10 page rule books. Like, this is crazy. Like, how many rules do we need? And so, you know, I think that's just a testament to your company and what you, y'all are doing over there. But uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's let's go back into uh, community a little bit more and let's talk about the new Kickstarter campaign. So you have Hand to Hand Wombat. It's uh, it's on Kickstarter right now uh, as we're we're doing this episode and and if you're listening to this, uh, I think it's on there. You'll have to remind me the date that it that it closes right here in just a second. But um, let's talk about that because you haven't been on Kickstarter since 2015 when you did Exploding Kittens and you had just unbelievable 
success. And so it's been seven years since then. And so what brought you back to Kickstarter, especially as it relates to your community and your audience? Uh, Carol, why don't I start? And then I'd love for you to jump in as someone who actually built the game. Uh, but just to just to start with why Kickstarter now. Um, so um, Carol and Corey worked very closely on this game. And it's so fun. Like, this was one of those games where the moment anybody plays it, they fall in love with it, and uh, they want to tell all their friends about it. And we thought, all right, we got two options for this game. Uh, we can just put it out on retail and on our website, or we can try crowdfunding again. And we haven't done crowdfunding in a long time. Uh, in between this and Exploding Kittens, we did another crowdfunding campaign for Throw Throw Burrito, actually. But even still, it's been quite a few years since we've been back. The thing that really took the scale for me is I, I think about crowdfunding as, um, you know, you look at those two words, crowd and funding, and everybody goes there for funding. Like that's that's sort of the go-to. Like here's how we're going to raise money around this game. I think that's totally wrong. I think the reason you go to crowdfunding is to raise a crowd and not funds. And this game does really well when people see it. It does really well when you watch a gameplay video. It does really well when you're willing to spend five or 10 seconds um, reading about it, looking at it, hearing about it, instead of just the simple static image that you'd see on a web page or just the game on a store shelf. And so I thought, all right, this feels like the perfect opportunity to go back to Kickstarter because this game, more than most, deserves to raise a crowd. Yeah, I love that. And Carol, I want to hear from you just saying, but I want to jump in real quick. I love that phrase, raise the crowd. Don't worry as much about the money. And this is something I've been thinking through for several years because people will say, well, how much do you hope to make on Kickstarter with this game? It's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I hope to have 2000 backers. I hope yeah. to have 1500. Like I'm thinking in terms of how many people can be brought to this product, to this game, even if they're dollar backers that want to get in later on the pledge manager, or even if they're just saying, Hey, Hey, I, I, you know, this game's not for me, but I just want to support you. That's fine too. Cause now they're still part of this community and maybe they'll back a game down the road. So I'm thinking more in terms of people, cause there've been plenty of campaigns that have raised a hundred thousand dollars on the backs of 300 people. And it's like, cool, I'm happy for you, but could you have gotten a thousand people? Could you have gotten two thousand people? Like, what could you have done differently to bring that number up as far as backers? All right, Carol, let's go back to you as far as kind of the, the ground level stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, well, as Alan mentioned, it's such a kinetic game that uh, we just really wanted to make sure that there were opportunities for people to engage with it and to to see it in action and to be able to share the story, um, both the development story and the gameplay story and everything. Like, it's just such an important game to us <laughs> that we just wanted to we wanted to ensure that our players had that chance to connect with it before it ever hit the shelves i think it's also really important um to acknowledge that like when we're when we're drawing our players with these kickstarter campaigns we're also opening up the opportunity for our players to contribute to the design before it's done and that's something that we really wanted to do with this one as well like we have this advanced gameplay mode for example where once players you know get comfortable with the game um, which if you're not familiar with it, it's called Hand-to-Hand -hand Wombat, and it is a dexterity social deduction game. No game like it has ever existed before. Um, but as you get to play it, you start to learn that dexterity function better and better, sort of like your kids are learning throw-throw burrito better and better. And so you, you know, you're building this skill and suddenly the, um, you know, the learning curve starts to, starts to flatten out a little bit. 
And so we added in this advanced gameplay mode and we have all these really interesting special roles for the social deduction aspect. And we were like, what a perfect opportunity for us to allow our players to contribute to this design process. We're going to have these you know, thousands of prototypes that we're going to send out and we're going to see what they like and we're going to see what ideas that they can contribute and help us out with. Like, what, what are they having fun with? What aren't they having fun with? And how can we help apply some of that you know, to the final product. And so that's, to me, that's what's exciting also is just the idea that there's still some sense of like authorship and ownership there that players feel like they're really given the opportunity to contribute. Yeah. All right. Let's, Carol, let's keep traveling down that road because I've seen a lot of companies that pretend to involve the community. They say, hey, you get to vote on these cards or, or these colors or whatever it is. But I mean, they've already really made the decision. They're just pulling stuff out and pretending to put it back in. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a fake bait and switch kind of deal. And so how do you actually do it? How do you like tell me your process as far as like, what do you leave open ended? What do you leave so that the backers can actually contribute and actually feel like they are part of it and it not just be, you know, smoke and mirrors, so to speak? Sure. I mean, we, we've got, obviously, we have ideas of things that we know work well, and we're looking for feedback on those ideas. But then we're also looking for our players to give their own so that we can consider how we might be able to incorporate that either into the retail version or into future versions, and just get an idea of what's resonating with players and what's not so that we as designers can take that information and apply that to the retail version, you know? I, just to add uh, a little bit, like for the actual physical implementation of that, the way that we've done it on our Kickstarter campaign is there's essentially four reward tiers, but we'll just we'll break them down into two categories. There's the category that you get the game. You will get a copy of the retail version of the game, and you'll get that in a few months. Um, the other category is the prototype category. And we're basically saying there's going to be two shipments. Immediately when the campaign ends, we are going to send you the prototype. And it's unpolished and it's ugly and it's developer art instead of the final art. And the instructions aren't quite formatted properly yet. And there's typos and spelling mistakes and all the rest of it. Um, we're going to show you all those words because what we, we need to get this to you fast. And we want you to play this game. We want you to tell us about your experience. We want you to suggest changes. Then we want to go test those changes. And all of this is in an effort so that when you get that second shipment, when all the other backers get their actual game, it is a game that you actually helped author. We believe that you should only ever go to Kickstarter with a game that's at most 80% complete because the final 20%, like I said, we're there to raise a crowd. So let's use that crowd to make the game as good as it can be. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Elon, I want to ask you about these ridiculously outlandish reward tiers. And just so people listening get an understanding of how, understanding of how crazy this is, let's talk about some of your uh, pledges so far. Um, obviously, the game. And obviously, you know, you can buy a game like normal and you, like you just talked about the prototype edition and things like that. But there's also a house. Yes, a house. A real house that someone has already backed for. Uh, let's see, $500 worth of Exploding Kittens games. That's also a dollar. A butt vase. Also a dollar, and you might ask, well, what is a butt vase? And I'm told it is literally how it sounds. It is a butt vase. How uh, let's see, what else? Any ambiguity. Come on. <laughs> a handmade wombat skull replica. Um, and then we have another butt vase here. So whose idea 
Elon, was it to have these just absolutely bananas reward tiers? And tell me the thought process behind that. <laughs> um, uh, th- th- this is, I, I mean, ev- everyone knows this is a marketing stunt. Like, we are very confident that our Kickstarter page is good. Like, people look at the game, all, most people then end up backing that game. Our conversion rate on the site is really high. We're so proud of it. We think the game represents itself really well. The difference between this campaign and the days of Exploding Kittens is our ability to tell people about this thing. It used to be, you know, Matt with the oatmeal had 40 million followers. He could just post, hey, I got a new Kickstarter campaign and 40 million eyeballs appear. Um, But now things like Facebook and Instagram and and all the rest of uh, social completely restricts that ability. You make a post with anything that looks like you're trying to get people off that site and they clamp down. Like they basically say, well, you can reach a thousand people. Of your 40 million, you can reach a thousand, period. Right? And it and it's so it's really, really hard. And we knew uh, going into this that we were going to need another method to pull eyeballs to the site. Because again, then the site converts really well. And so the theory here was to essentially exploit something um, that Kickstarter does, which is it says you can create a reward tier. You can sell any object you want. You can set the price uh, as anything you want. But there's two variables that you can also set. One is when that thing goes live, when that reward becomes available, and how many of them you give out. So we thought, well, what if we buy a house, put it up there with a limit of one, sell it for a dollar for whoever sees that thing first. And then let's go scream from the mountaintops. Last night, Exploding Kitten sold a house for a dollar. And we promise that throughout the next 30 days, throughout the remainder of our campaign, there's going to be other insane stuff of that caliber. Uh, Just crazy, funny, ridiculous things, all for a dollar, all with a limit of one. And if you want any of these things, if you want to buy any of these ridiculous, fun party things, Come to our page. Tell your friends about it. Uh, we're never going to tell you when these things appear. Uh, we're never going to. We're never going to tell you what they are. But our goal is get you to the Kickstarter page. And this seemed like a really fun celebratory way to say, "This is going to be cool. This is not going to be like your normal Kickstarter campaign. Come play with us, and we guarantee you'll have a good time." Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have you gotten any just ridiculous questions? Like people saying, hey, is this is this for real? Like, I'm, I'm curious about that person who backed the ca- the campaign for the house. Like, did they yeah. just see it and go, okay, I'll, I'll give this a shot? Like, tell me about that. So the campaign's not over. So we actually don't know <laughs> who the backers are yet. We, we only get that report once the campaign is done. Um, but we we do know that uh, there's been a lot of press about it, which is great. We know that um, comments on the Kickstarter page are almost all positive. The few negative ones are a few grumpy people who are like, look, I've been on this site for so long and I keep hitting refresh and I didn't win and I'm, I'm a little bit bitter <laughs> that I didn't win. I get that. I'd be grumpy too, but I hope you stick with us because there's a lot more really fun stuff coming up. And like, honestly, the way that we think about Kickstarter is... Um, we want to throw a party and everybody's invited. And so all of our stretch goals, everything that makes the, the game better, the, everything where we give you stuff for free, um, none of that is ever tied to money. We're giving away, honestly, just insanely expensive stuff that we are just going to buy uh, and give away for a dollar because we, we don't, we, we're not here to raise funds. We're here to raise a crowd. And this seemed like a really fun way to do so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, what would be your advice for a smaller company that doesn't have the resources to go buy a house and sell it for a dollar and doesn't have the resources to do some of these other things? They don't have access to butt vases uh, as far as they know. It's not on Alibaba or or Etsy or whatever. Uh, What would be your advice for, you know, a company to be able to do something similar, to still bring eyeballs, to still kind of have these kind of interesting guerrilla marketing tactics, but maybe on a smaller, cheaper scale? What would you say? I would say, as always, like I just stay laser focused on that community, on that crowd. Make sure they're happy. Make sure that they understand you are not here to for the money. You are here to start something beautiful and you need their help to do it. Kickstarter is not a store is what they like to say. I like to say Kickstarter is not a place to put commercials. You're not you're really not trying to advertise your beautiful, finished, polished product. You're there to say, I've got this cool idea. I need your help. Together, we can make this even better. And I, again, I'm, I'm not here to give you a silver bullet for how to do this. I don't know if the stuff that we do is right or if there's better solutions. But you are trying to start with a few people and get those people to tell their friends and so on. And the only way you're going to motivate them to do so is if they feel that they are important and part of the process of making this thing real. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. As we kind of wrap things up, Carol, back to you. Is there anything else you want to add as far as the game's development, the game's design, as it relates to community, as it relates to the Kickstarter campaign, anything maybe we uh, left out? Oh, um, the, I mean, if you want to get more information about the game's design itself, there's actually a really amazing like 45-minute interview between me, Alon, and Corey O'Brien, the designer of the game, where we get into the really crunchy details about like the origins of the game and the development process and all that. And so that's actually on the Kickstarter page itself. So to any designers and developers who are listening and who just really want to, who want to get into the, you know, the details, the really, you know, low level details, please take a look at that because it was an interesting process. Like we went through so many different uh, prototypes and design iterations and, and went from making a bluffing game to making a social deduction game because we realized that that was what was engaging our community better and um, that was what was getting our players more excited. And so, um, yeah, you can just go, <laughs> go hear about that whole process on the Kickstarter page. Yeah, if you really want to see uh, Carol's superpower in action, that is a really great interview because we talk about it first. It's just mostly me just asking questions um, and both Carol and Corey answering them. But it's it's really stepping through the minutia of, okay, here's a new version. Here's why it didn't work. Here was the challenge uh, on how to fix it. Holy crap, they fixed it. Oh, but that introduced a bunch of new problems. Okay, let's talk about those problems. How did they fix it? Holy crap, they fixed it again. Oh, but now there's more problems. And really, um, you can you can see the process of like each time uncovering a little gem of fun and finally figuring out how all those gems fit together, how you jettison all the baggage that was holding it back, and um, eventually how it arrived at the final product, which is the one we're so excited about. Very cool. And I'll make sure to put a link to the Kickstarter campaign in the show notes. And so anyone listening to this that's curious about that interview, want to learn more about the game or the design process, development process behind it, you'll be able to find that there really easily. Well, Carol, Alon, this has been excellent. As far as closing thoughts, anything you want to leave listeners with? And Carol, we'll start with you as far as community, as far as game design, anything in general you just want to close things out with? Oh, just, I mean, always design with your player in mind. Like there's people who are like, do you design mechanics first or theme first? So you should always be designing with your player first. You know, think about your community. Think about who you're making the game for 
and go from there. I think that that's a, that's a huge part of the process. If you're trying to build a design company or build a game that really resonates with a certain community that you're working toward. Um, I think that's, <laughs> it's an under, uh, it's an underappreciated starting point, but I think it's one of the most important ones to consider. Yeah, definitely. All right. Ilan, what you got? Um, some, one of the questions I actually get the most is, um, how do you know when your game is done? And um, I've, I've seen a lot of people tackle that problem from a, a bunch of different angles, um, different playtests and different questions you ask and different processes you go through. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning that um, I think there's only one answer to that. I think whenever you run a playtest, no matter how many people are playing it, no matter how many, how often you've done those playtests, there's only one question you need to ask them. And that question is, do you want to play again? And when you get to the point where the answer is always yes, that's when you're done with your game. Awesome. That is excellent advice. Well, Carol, Elon, really appreciate y'all's time. Really appreciate y'all joining me here on the show. Good luck with Hand to Hand Wombat currently on Kickstarter. And good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?